Matthew, the 28th chapter. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, <clears throat> it would be on page um, 835. And once you read it, um, and then we'll be seated. And after that, just keep that out because we're just going to slowly walk through um, this section of scripture that we're reading. Um, here's what Matthew records for us. He says that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth um, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this command and this commissioning. Thank you, Jesus, that you have promised that as we go, you would never leave us nor forsake us. May you be near to us today. May this result in what we're preaching about what you say here in the making of disciples. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So we're in a, I don't know, like 10 week, 11 weeks, something like that series on uh, discipleship, on what it means to be a disciple who's making disciples. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be a disciple. We said this simply, a disciple is someone who's a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus goes and he says to the men that he calls these these 11, actually there were 12 that Jesus went and Jesus called as he simply said to them, follow me. And what's recorded in the gospel accounts is that they left all of their stuff. They left their nets and they left their tax collecting booth and they left their families and they follow after Jesus. And so that's what we see through the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're reading about these men following Jesus, witnessing what Jesus has done. We've come to the end of Jesus's life in fact, Jesus has already been crucified. He's already been resurrected from the dead. He's spent about 40 days with these same disciples. And at the end, what we see is Jesus directs them to go to a mountaintop, wait for him there. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says these words. Now, I think it's important for us to notice that this is a mountain that Jesus calls him to. And in fact, if we were to look at um, throughout like the Bible, there is a, a mountaintop motif, if you will that oftentimes when God wants to communicate something to his people, he takes them to a mountaintop where he communicates it. If you think about in the book of Exodus, God takes his people, he rescues them from Egypt, sends them to the wilderness, and God takes them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And then Moses climbs up the mountain where God speaks to Moses and gives Moses the law. If you think about Jesus, Jesus will come onto the scene and Jesus will give his most, most lengthy sermon his most prominent teaching will happen where? On a mountain. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's why it's because Jesus takes his disciples on a mountain. That's where Jesus teaches. Jesus wants to show his, a manifestation of his glory. He chooses three of his disciples to show this to. Peter, James, and John. And where again, where does Jesus take Peter, James, and John where he will be transfigured in their very eyes? You guessed it, to a mountain. And so it's important for us to notice here that it's no small thing that Jesus directs his disciples to go to a mountain. Now, how many men are going here? 11. We're not talking about 500. We're talking about 11 men meet Jesus on this mountain. But look at what Matthew says. is these men, these disciples, that they're, they're divided into uh, two categories, if you will. Of the 11, there's two groups according to their response when they see Jesus. They see Jesus on the mountain. 
They go, they're obedient, and they're still, though, they're divided into two groups. The first group is that some worship Jesus. I don't know what that looked like. Maybe they fell at Jesus's feet and they began to worship him there. Maybe it's just like indicative of their heart that we that, that Matthew knew as he's writing scripture here that they worship. But then look at the second group. It says that some doubted. So in the two groups, there are those who were fully convinced disciples. And then there were speculating disciples. There were disciples who possibly didn't have all their questions answered yet. There were disciples in that group that said like, man, I, I think I know, but I don't, maybe I just don't really know. Um, they, they, I don't know what they doubted or why they doubted or, or what it is that's the doubt in their heart. I mean, you would think if, if anyone would be removed of all and alleviated of all their doubt, it would be like these 11 men. I mean, think about what they've seen. They've seen Jesus do. They've seen Jesus calm the seas and the storms and heal the sick and raise the dead and multiply food. And they've seen Jesus do all of these things. And now even they've seen Jesus die on a cross, be laid in a tomb and be resurrected back to life. They've seen Jesus show up in a room. They're in a room, windows shut, door shut, Jesus shows up. But it's not a ghost, it's Jesus because one of them, Thomas, goes and touches Jesus, his hands, where his, where his wrists, where the nails were, into his side where the spear stuck him. And so, I mean, they've eaten breakfast by this man, that's this, this, this man who was once dead. And yet what Matthew records for us, some worshiped, but then there were those who doubted. There were still those who doubted. But what I want you to notice here it's no small thing that he mentions this, I believe. I think this will help many of us. Look at Jesus's response to the two groups. Do you notice any, um, any division in Jesus's response to this group? He responds to this group in the same way. To both the worshipers and the doubters, the disciples of the group, he responds in the same way with giving them a command. That for the group that doubted, their, their doubts and their questions and their speculations, it did not preclude them. It did not excuse them. It did not disqualify them from the mission and the command to go make disciples of the nations. And in fact, church history and the book of Acts would even teach us this. I think we can say this in, in, in no way making really a speculation of this, but somehow from this moment, and Jesus ascends on high and the Holy Spirit is given to them as we see what will follow in, in the book of Acts. And then they, they go out preaching and proclaiming the gospel. But if you were to fast forward to all 11 of these men's lives, all 11 of these men will give up their lives as, as martyrs. They will die, well, all but one, John um, the apostle. John is the one, the one gospel of John and first and second, third John and Revelation, the writer of that book, he will not die um, at the hand of persecution. Fox's book of the martyrs says they tried. They tried to burn him at the stake, I believe. They tried to uh, kill him in other ways, but the, the mug couldn't die. He wouldn't die, that God was preserving his life and he'll be exiled on the island of Patmos and the the story says he was the only one that will die of, the, of old age. But the other 10 men, they will be sawn in two. They will be beheaded. They will be burned at the stake. Peter will be crucified upside down. 
Another one will be crucified. Somewhere between this moment and the end of their lives, evidently their doubts got figured out. That as they went on the mission, as they went to proclaim and to tell the good news of what Jesus has done, in the midst of going and telling and doing and proclaiming and showing, either one of two things happened. Either their questions got answered or maybe, just maybe, their questions no longer mattered. Their doubts became so insignificant as they served on the mission, but something happened here to where they were willing at the end of their lives to give up and to turn over their lives for the fame and for the sake of the gospel. The truth is, even for us, that we don't need to have all of your questions answered in order to go and to make disciples. Man, I got questions. I don't, don't ask me about the dinosaurs. I don't know. Like, how, I don't know. I don't know how, how did God create somebody? I recently, uh, uh, Pastor Andy, which view of the creation do you have? I don't know. On Mondays, I feel this way. On Tuesdays, I feel this way. Like, this much I know. One is I know that God created it. And this much I know. I know this, that Jesus was no ordinary man. This I am fully convinced on, that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was no ordinary man that he came and he lived and he died a real death and he was resurrected from the grave and he ascended on high and he sent his spirit. That much I absolutely know. The truth is, is that what do we need to know is you need to know Christ and you need to live a holy life. But the truth is you may have questions and you may be seasons of doubt, but listen to me, Christianity isn't just a religion of, of contemplation. You don't just excuse yourself from, a, from the world and enter into a room where you contemplate and you think and you wrap your mind that Christianity, as we even see here, the essence of Christianity is a call to do and to be and to carry out the mission of Jesus. There may be times when you may have doubts and there may be times when you have questions, but listen, Jesus meets us as we carry out his mission. He meets us. Maybe he answers our questions or maybe our questions just don't seem to matter. That doing ministry, making disciples, it, it has a maturing effect on us. Parents in the room, I mean, how much did you grow up, regardless of your age, but how much did you grow up when you had children? Like, I know not everybody does this and some people need to do this, but still, for the most of us, the majority of us, there was like a maturing effect that happened when the doctor said, it's a boy or it's a girl. It's like you matured by 10 years. Like again, not everybody, but certainly we should. There's a maturing effect that happens. When you have kids, there's a, there's a weightiness and a responsibility that lays on your shoulder. Like I remember bringing my, my oldest child, Kennedy Grace, when we brought Kennedy home from the hospital. And I remember being in that room and thinking about this precious little child and this bassinet beside us and mom beside him and, and feeling a weightiness in this, a maturing effect happening. And listen, ministry works in the same way. There's a maturity that occurs in your faith when your faith is no longer just about you, but it begins to become about others. There's an accountability that occurs. There's an accountability that occurs that ministry just naturally brings. 
when your faith and your, your life and what you do and what you say and whether you stay in the faith or leave the faith, when it's no longer just about you, but it's now about your family and your wife and precious children. Like you, hopefully you feel this as you teach back in kids point that man, those little kids are looking to you. And when you like are here and then you're not here, like they notice those sorts of things. When you're, when you're absent, you just leave. And well, what happened to teacher so-and-so? I mean, believe it, I can ask my three-year-old every Sunday, who was your teacher today? Well, it was Miss So-and-so, Miss so and you know, somebody. That even, like, good grief for me, I feel the weightiness. But man, if, that it strengthens my walk. Temptations become more real, but they also become in some ways weaker when you feel the effects of it. Like for me, woe unto me. If I would cause one of Jesus's children to stumble, if I would too, by my actions or by my flesh or by some other means, if I was to bring reproach upon Jesus and cause one of his children to stumble, there's a maturing effect that ministry has. The disciple makers, we're not those who necessarily have it all figured out, but even what we see in this text is disciple makers, and that's what we're all called to be. We ultimately, we are those who trust in Jesus and we trust in Jesus' authority. Look at that, that's what's next. Move past the doubters and the worshipers and look at what it says in verse number 18. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, this statement isn't anything new. It's Jesus's entire ministry has been a, proclamation and a demonstration of Jesus's authority. That Jesus, this wasn't a new mantle that was laid on him, but as the son of God, Jesus already had authority. When he showed up on this earth, what he's doing is just demonstrating throughout his ministry, he's demonstrating his authority. Jesus will preach his first sermon. When Jesus finishes, he goes, he rolls up the scroll, he sets it down, he goes and sets down and the audience, the congregation is like, wow, what authority this man has. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't have this kind of authority, the authority that Jesus possesses. It wasn't just authority in, in, in uh, how he was saying it. It was also authority in what he was saying. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. Jesus is ramping up the law. He's speaking the word of God as one who has authority. Jesus had authority over demonic activity. Jesus cast out demons. Demons understood who Jesus was. Jesus kind of walked into a group of people and a, if there was a demonic person there, the demons would cry out, well, well, Jesus, what do you want with me? Leave me alone, right? Jesus had authority over demons. Jesus had authority over diseases. That's why he's able to heal the sick, the lame, and the lepers. Jesus has authority over death. He raises the dead and brings them back to life. Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus walks on water, calms storms, multiplies food. Jesus has authority over sin. He pardons and forgives sin. Even pre the cross, Jesus has authority to pardon and forgive sin. That Jesus has authority over everything. Every king, every kingdom, every president, every government over everything Jesus has authority. And what that means to us is very personal because it means Jesus has authority over you and over me. Jesus has authority over it all. Guess what 
is included in that all. We are included in that all. And that's important to note because what follows in this text is an authoritative command that every believer, every believer will stand accountable to their obedience and their participation and their cooperation in fulfilling Jesus's command that follows like this. Verse number 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the authoritative command that Jesus is issuing forth to every follower of Christ. It is the authoritative command that every believer will stand before Jesus and be held accountable to your obedience, participation, and cooperation in fulfilling this command. Now, if you'll remember when we were in elementary school, we used to have to diagram the, a, a sentence. Do you all remember that? You talk about what's the parts of speech and all that. You've got to diagram it. Well, let's do that here for just a second. We will, we will not draw it out, but we will at least think about it in our minds. We will diagram the command. Here's what the command, um, here's what the command contains. The first thing the command contains is an imperative verb. It's a, one command, one to do, one necessary, one action made up of two words. Now, it could be confusing because you see go, you could, well, go, there it is. There, it, but it's not. In the original language, the word go is actually what we'll get to in a minute. It's actually a, um, it's actually a participle. That in the original language, it's really going or as you go. We would say, as you go, therefore make disciples. And so that's not the imperative verb. The imperative verb here, the action that we're called to do is simply this, make disciples. One action Two words, this is what I'm commanding you to do. All of my followers, all of my people, all of my disciples, everyone's a disciple, everyone's following after Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. Then there are three participles. These are the I-N-G words. These are verbs that have been modified to adjectives. And so they describe the verb. They describe the action. How are we to make disciples? Well, three ways we are to make disciples like this, in going, in baptizing, and in teaching. So we're to make disciples. How are we to do that? We're going, baptizing, and teaching. And who, to whom are we to carry this out? To whom are we to go? To whom are we to baptize? To whom are we to teach in order to make them disciples? Well, simply this, all nations, everybody. But what we see here, this, oh my gosh, like this is one of those places where I love where God's word just is sewn together. That God, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God will promise one man and he will make a covenant promise with this one man. And what he'll say to this man, his name was Abram. God changes his name to Abraham. And what God says is through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham's like, whoa, how is that going to happen? Through your offspring, through the, 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 the promise of a son, and through that son, all the inhabitants, all the nations will be blessed. And Jesus is the fulfillment. 
that Jesus is a Jew. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, the father of the Jewish family. And through Jesus, all the nations, all the inhabitants will be blessed through his work. But it is our job as Jesus's church to go and to share and to tell that good news. The blessing, you all remember that on family vacation, the blessing the blessing of the people, the blessing of the nations is the finished work of Jesus. It is the good news that God saves sinners, that although all have sinned, that through the obedient life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection of Jesus, sinners can be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God. And what the first thing he tells us to do is we are to go in going. Disciples are made as we go and we proclaim the gospel. So imagine if you would a time like in biblical times when there wasn't the number of ways of communication that you and I share. I mean, try to think of like, I sometimes it, it's weighty to think of all the ways that you and I have to communicate with one another. We, you know, if, if, even if we lived apart, think of all the ways I could call you on the phone, but you wouldn't answer it. We'd go to your voicemail and then it would say your voicemail's full, right? Or the, okay, so then follow up with that. I could send you a text. I could send you a, a Facebook message. I could send you an email. Like start thinking about all the ways that you and I have to communicate. But in biblical times, there wasn't all of these ways to communicate. There was really one way to communicate and it was by foot and it was by messenger. So think about like you're living in an outpost way far away from the capital of the city. There you're living in a small fortress. Inside that fortress, something happens within the nation. How do you find out? You find out when the messenger comes and delivers the news. I mean, think about how bizarre that would be for those of us who live like during 9-11. How did you find out about 9-11? Like you found out most of us like almost in real time as it was happening because it's being broadcast on the news. But let's say you lived in like Miami, Florida in a fortress in an outpost, which wouldn't be all bad, right? In Miami, Florida and New York City gets like gets attacked. How long would it take for the messenger to arrive and to get there? Like, in fact, Isaiah 52 picks up on this story that God is speaking through Isaiah and giving a prophecy. He's giving a word picture and he's, he's describing the watchman who's standing in watch on the fortress wall through the watchtower, watching the hills, like this wouldn't work in Miami, but watching the hills and the mountains. And here comes the messenger. And you see him, he's, he's running and climbing over rocks and making his way down. And you're, you're wondering what's the message that he brings? What message and what news is he bringing to us? And as he comes closer, you see a scroll in his hand. And then the messenger starts yelling, good news, good news, good news. And you say, open the gates. And the gates would come in and the guy would run in. And so then what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 52 is he says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Now, listen, that's a word play that Isaiah is picking up on. Because you got to think about, this is before Timberland, red wing boots and shoes. This is whenever they had sandals and not even good sandals, like uh, what's the sandals? Uh, Chaco sandals, right? Not even before they had that. They just had straps of leather. So when they entered in from running, their feet would be anything but beautiful. Their feet would be nicked up and scarred up and cut up and callous and full of thorns and all of that kind of stuff. But then he would say, because of what he's carried, the message that he's carried, it's worth the nicks and the cuts and the scars on his feet because the proclamation is good news. 
And the apostle Paul picks up on that very same imagery that Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 52, when he talks about missionaries carrying the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. What he's saying is is exactly the same thing. In fact, let's look at it with me. It'll be on the screen, but it's found in Romans, the 10th chapter. Romans, the 10th chapter, Paul makes this declaration in verse number 13, for everyone who calls upon the name will be saved. Gosh, I'm so, like if you read all the book of Romans, man, you get to this tension point because it's through the Jews, through the Jews, through the Jews. If you're not a Jew, sorry, you're, you're out of luck, right? You're through the Jews. It's through, and then all of a sudden he says, and it's through the whole nation, both Jew and Gentile. Now, anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be, shall be saved. What beautiful news. But then he follows up in verse number 14 with a question. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching and proclaiming and telling and teaching and sharing. Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? And here it is. And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach and proclaim the good news. And what Jesus is, and what Paul is telling us here is, and we got to tell that you and I, we got good news to share. And it might mean our feet get cut up as we run. But listen, listen, that doesn't matter. What matters is the beauty of the message that you and I get to share, that the God of this universe who is both just and, and perfect and good and also that, that, that is, is also merciful and loving towards sinners and that through Jesus, we can be forgiven, that through Jesus, sinners like you and I can be reconciled to God And what Jesus is saying in this text, in Matthew the 28th, he is saying, man, you gotta go. Church, how else are they gonna hear? How else are they gonna know unless you and I go? That we gotta go. Who are we to go to? Who are we to tell? Well, we're to tell everyone that we can. We're to tell anyone who would listen. That's, we can start there. Anyone and everyone that we can I think it starts with ourselves. We, we tell and we preach and we proclaim the good news of the gospel message to our own hearts. I was reminded of a, a great um, author and preacher that I, that I dearly love, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He died actually in the 1980s. He's one of the few contemporary guys that I really, really like and, and, and listen to. And they said that Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was, a, he was a young doctor. I mean, like a professional doctor. He was really good at what he was doing. And then he felt a call to go into ministry. So Martin Lloyd-Jones goes before his church and says, you know, he's probably like this, here I am, I feel called to go to ministry. That's kind of how he talked. That, that's, that was terrible, like edit that. But he, slow, slow, slow language. He's from um, England, he's, from, he's Welch. And so he says, I feel called to, to go into the ministry. And they ask him, they're like, Martin Lloyd-Jones, what makes you think you can preach? I mean, you're a good young doctor, but what makes you think you can preach? And he says this, because I've been preaching to myself all these years. It starts with us preaching to ourselves. And from there, we preach and we share with our families. We share with our, with our children, moms and dads in the room, husbands sharing with their wives, wives sharing with their husbands, making disciples in the home. Listen to me, moms and dads. The goal is not just to raise respectable children. 
I mean, that's good. Thank you. As a member of this society, I say thank you to those of you who are raising your children to be productive, moral people and members of our society, but productive members of our society, respectable people are not disciples. Woe to us as parents if we teach our kids how to swing a bat, how to swing a golf club, how to tie their shoes, how to catch a catfish, kill a big buck, run a trot line, right? If we teach our boys that, if we teach how to bake a cake, the, the girls how to apply eye makeup, how to find a good bargain, and we do not teach them to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live for Jesus' glory. Woe to us. We begin with ourselves. We tell our families. We tell our friends. We tell our neighbors. We tell our co-workers. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus may call you to move into a different city, a different country, a different location, and to go and to make disciples there. We are called to go and to tell. The disciple making begins with initiating relationships in which you share Jesus's message, in which you teach about Jesus's life, you teach about Jesus's commands, and you model Jesus's virtues. That's the context of discipleship. It begins with us initiating relationships with purpose and intentionality to share the good news. My, uh, one of my missions professors when I was in Bible college, he said this, that if you look in the original language and you see what, what here, what Matthew writes and Jesus, I mean, what Jesus says in his command of go, that what he's really speaking is he's speaking an acronym. The go is actually in the text, it's, a, it's an acronym. So if you think of an acronym as a, as you know, a word picture of G stands for something and the O stands for something, then what does the G stand for? The G stands for get. And what does the O stand for? The O stands for out, get out is what Jesus is saying when he talks about us going, that we have to get out, get out of our church buildings and church walls and out of our family buildings, our family walls, and get out of our pretty nice backyards that are all petitioned off that no one can see in and you can't see out because it says to our neighbors like, hey, stay out, stay off, get off my grass. We got to get beyond that. We got to get out of that. We got to go and possibly, just possibly, God may call us to go to a foreign country, a different land. What are we to do? We're to go. And when we get there, what are we to do? Well, two actions we're to do when we get there. The first one is to baptize. The disciples are made as we baptize those who believe in Jesus and believe in his gospel. Look at what Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian baptism because all of the Trinity was at work to stay to save your stinking soul. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, it took the entire Trinity at work in order to convert you, to transform you from a sinner into becoming a saint, into the one outside of the family of God, into an adopted son of the God, that the Father planned it, the son has accomplished it and the spirit is now applying what Jesus has done and accomplished into hearts and into lives. That's why we baptize them into the name of the father, the son and the Holy spirit. The baptism is the public identification that we are followers of Jesus. That in baptism, we publicly, and I highlight the word publicly because Jesus said we are to confess Jesus before men. 
If you want me, Jesus says, to confess you before the Father, then you need to confess me before men. And in baptism, that is that public confession of Jesus. It begins there and happens all of our lives, but it is a public, we're publicly identifying with Jesus, his work, our personal acceptance of that work. It's our personal acceptance of the free gift and the free grace that God has done in the finished work of Jesus. It's more than a ceremony. It's an illustration. It's an illustration of what's occurred. It's a personal connection with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it symbolizes. Just as Jesus is laid into a grave and raised, resurrected to walk, so you and I, we enter into a a, a watery grave for just a second. We come back up out of that watery grave and we're raised to walk in newness of life. The baptism is a declaration that we're not just trying to become a more moral and better person. That's not Christianity. It should include improved morality. It should include you being a better person, but ultimately that is not Christianity. Christianity is faith in Jesus. It is us receiving Jesus's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Have you been baptized? That's question one. Peter preaches Acts 2. Spirits come, church is being collected, Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. They reply to Peter, simply this, Peter, what must we do to be saved? Two words, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you for the remission of your sin. In repentance, you're turning from yourself and your sin, the pleasures and the broken promises of this world, and you're turning to Christ. And that's what baptism illustrates is you're turning to Christ. You're trusting in Christ. I'm, no, I'm trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. I'm trusting in Christ that what he promises and the pleasures that he gives are better than the pleasures of this world. Trusting in Christ. Question one for you is, have you been baptized? And question number two, when was the last time someone you were relationally invested in was baptized. You personally, when's the last time you got to witness someone you were personally invested in? Someone you were personally, relationally connected to be baptized? And if you would say never, or you'd say it's been a long time, I think the follow-up question that would be why? Could it be that everybody that you know is saved? Then maybe you need a new set of friends. Could it be because you're not sharing the good news? Certainly it's not because God is not good. Certainly it's not because God does not care about the salvation of lost people. I mean, he sent his son to die on the cross. Possibly, I think, possibly maybe it could fall on on us. Third thing we're to do is we're to teach. Disciples are made as we teach believers the truths of Jesus's words or the truths in Jesus's words. Look at verse number 20. We're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded. We're to baptize them as witness of their conversion. And then we're to teach, we're to instruct the disciple making involves teaching. 
It involves, you ready for this? It involves opening a Bible up and teaching and instructing and learning together. It involves someone teaching someone to pray. It involves teaching someone to read their Bible, to study the Bible. It involves teaching someone in who God is and what God has done and all the implications of what God has done for us. It involves teaching someone the commands of Christ, all that he has commanded his people. It is to teach them how to live, how to live for the glory of Christ, how to live in this present evil age, how to submit to Jesus and to keep oneself unstained from this world. It is to teach one the virtues associated with the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. It's to teach someone about the Holy Spirit, his fruit and his infilling, his power coming into your life, how to walk in the Spirit. It's to teach someone about the church, about how to participate in the church, how we are involved in Jesus' holy community, his household, his family of faith, that everything that you are learning about Jesus through Jesus' word isn't just intended for you, but it's to pass to you and through you to others, other people, so that you may enable and help other people to grow in Christ. The disciple making means not letting the word, the word of Christ, it will come to you, it will dwell in you richly, as scripture says, but it doesn't just stop there. It's letting it spread through us. And lastly, if you will, notice what ends this text with a promise. Look at Jesus' promise. And behold, I am with you always. Man, that's good news. To the ends of the age. This is the promise of Jesus. Do you want to experience the presence of Jesus in your life? Then get on his mission. Start making disciples. And look what's happening here. You will experience, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. That promise is made to disciples who are making disciples. If your faith feels stale, start investing in someone else. Ask someone else, uh, uh, ladies in the room, ask another lady, hey, can we start meeting for lunch? And hey, can we go through this book? Start sharing the gospel with those around us and watch your faith for Jesus come alive. And number two in this text, this authoritative promise, it is a reminder that we need Jesus's presence in order to fulfill the great commission. In order to fulfill the mission of God, we need Jesus to be with us and to be among us. Otherwise, he would not have promised himself to us, which is next week's sermon the role of prayer in carrying out the mission. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to a time to just remember you, would you just massage into our hearts how good this news is that we get to tell? Would you massage that into our hearts? into our minds in this moment. Ultimately, we give you thanks. Thank you for saving. Thank you for saving sorry sacks of sin like ourselves. That you loved us enough, that you saved us. And you call us your own. As imperfect as we are, as fickle as we are, that certainly most of us, we're the doubters in the group. 
And yet you, by your sovereign goodness, you've decided to use us. Use us. But Lord, may there be an urgency to what we do and how we live. It's in your name we pray. Amen.